Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. I like to consider myself a fairly understanding person. I tend to read widely, I love learning, and I'm admired by cats for my curiosity. So it's rare that I come across something that just doesn't make sense, even a little bit. And just reflecting on my own craziness, I understand a little bit about why people dress their poodles in sweaters, just a little. And yet there's something that I just can't make sense of, something that is so incomprehensible, so strange, that I, I question the sanity of it. And that's curling. I'm not talking about the thing you do for massive biceps. That I get, and that I need to do. But what I'm talking about is the Olympic sport of curling, which is, if you haven't seen it before, there's a target painted on the ice, a person slides a rock towards it, and then there's a couple other people with little brooms scrubbing furiously in front of it. It's basically two-dimensional darts played on ice with rocks and brooms. It's like it's from Harry Potter. Um, like, how does that make sense? Now, when I was in college, one of my literature professors, um, whom I highly respected, was an avid, semi-professional curling athlete. And, uh, and so one of the smartest people, and one of the manliest men I have ever met, loved curling. And it still makes no sense to me. And I'm one of those people who believe that baseball is actually the greatest sport ever created by mankind. And I might be exaggerating a little bit about curling, not baseball. But I wonder if in a lot of ways, my incredulity over curling, shall we call it, is similar to how people responded to Paul when he came to town talking about Jesus. Late in the first century, this man named Paul comes to Corinth of Greece. And it's a city of commerce, of wealth, and the passionate worship of the goddess of love, Aphrodite. In Paul's own language, he arrives weary and worried, in part because his recent journey through Athens proved fruitless and frustrating. The scholars of Athens, while they were amused by Paul, found his message to be nonsensical. First, it, it lacked the pizzazz and shine of the rhetoricians. And it made absurd propositions about resurrection and a God-man named Jesus that no right-minded Greek philosopher would ever entertain. But on top of that, a band of Paul's own countrymen, the Jews, have been hounding him from town to town trying to thwart his message. Because in the message of Jesus, they find something so threatening and so offensive to all that they believe. And yet undeterred, Paul begins telling the Corinthians about Jesus. He settles down for a year and a half, gets a job, and is assured by God that there is work for him to do there. And in a godless place, like Corinth, among a people obsessed with money and sex, under a culture infatuated with a good show and cleverness, the gospel actually explodes. And so when Paul finally heads out, he leaves a network of house churches and budding believers through whom the Spirit of God powerfully works. After his experience in Athens and in his discussions with its philosophers, Paul comes to Corinth with a simple, focused message. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And it was a compelling view of God that turned the hearts of especially the poor and the struggling of Corinth's streets, docks, and markets. 
But after Paul's departure, the Corinthian churches began to struggle because the gospel of Jesus is, well, it's a little weird. It doesn't, there's not a lot of it that makes sense to the Corinthian lifestyle. And so the Corinthian churches realize that Jesus begins to make a lot more sense when they saw him as a Greek teacher with a Corinthian lifestyle and sensibility. And so some issues come up in the church in Corinth. You're having problems with another believer? Nope, just, just sue him. That's the way you do things. Or people are disagreeing with you. Well, just make them feel stupid and belittle them until they stop. Or a man's having an affair with his mother-in-law? Why is that a problem? Right? Jesus died for our sins, so we don't have to feel any more guilt, and now we're free to be more Corinthian. Because all of that makes sense. Or if you know, if you're a little more intellectual in Corinth, then uh, Jesus makes more sense if he's also a good follower of Plato or Aristotle. We know this physical world is just a distraction, and, and so let's all be celibate twice or fast twice as much, hate our bodies, and then we're going to find a spiritual teacher to venerate, and then we'll know that God accepts us, and everyone's going to know that we're better than them. Because again, that makes more sense. Now, in response to this, Paul writes a letter to the churches of Corinth. And he says that, yes, Jesus doesn't make sense to our world, whether to the philosophical Greek or the expectant Jew or the sensual Corinthian. And yet it's precisely because Jesus doesn't make sense to us that we actually discover he makes the most sense of all. Before we go any further, I'm going to pray for our time again. Father, thank you again that we can gather. Uh, thank you that we have your word, that we can read it and through it understand more of who you are and our relationship with you. Uh, please speak to us today um, so that we might know you more clearly. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul opens his first letter to the Corinthians by addressing some reports of division and fighting within the church, in particular over who was baptized by whom, and sects are beginning to form over people's preferred pastor. You got Paul, a dude named Apollos, Peter, and of course, Jesus, and you can cue Paul's eye roll at that. So Paul then transitions to our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians 1.17 after urging the Corinthians to find unity and to agree on the same things. It says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now when Paul came to Corinth, he didn't patter himself after the teachers of his day. He wasn't there to accrue a posse or make some fame or baptize people into his following. And while Paul's message was wise, he didn't strut himself like a pretentious philosopher who dallied with clever reasoning and ostentatious rhetoric in order to entertain people. Paul's message wasn't this decked out Christmas gift with an IOU inside. It was just the bare gift itself, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, this probably bothered the Corinthians because theirs was a culture that valued performance and wit. How you presented something was even more important than the thing you actually presented because they wanted to be dazzled and entertained. And theirs was a city that was famous for its business and for, to its dedication to physical pleasure in all of its forms. And instead, Paul was boring. He didn't blind you with his intellect or crush you with his presence or give you wisdom to make more money. Paul was as 
bland as vanilla ice cream. And yet Paul makes a stern warning here. Says that if we share the gospel in order to entertain, we empty the cross of its power. That if we distract from the central message, the whole thing becomes meaningless. And so with this rather bold statement, we enter into our passage today. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Now, why can't the message of the cross be emptied? It's because it's the power of God. It's the means by which God saves those who trust him. Now, let's pause there for a second, because sometimes when you've been in and around the church for a while, we hear things like this and don't think much about them. And yet it's only by knowing who God truly is does the cross make any sort of sense. For everyone else, it's complete nonsense. Right? God became human. Well, that's ridiculous. He came to redeem humanity who was rebelling against him. That's crazy. He does it by dying. Well, that's impossible. He's God. And he dies on a cross. Well, that's just absurd. And yet Paul assures us that God did it precisely this way. And that, yes, it makes no sense. And to show this, Paul quotes a passage from Isaiah. Isaiah 29. Now, as is good practice, whenever we come across an Old Testament quote, let's turn there. And as is better uh, practice, let's get a sense of what's going on. So this is Isaiah chapter 29. Now, in the chapter, Isaiah has this vision of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is under siege. And through the book of Isaiah, the nation of Judah has consistently committed herself to the exploitation of the poor, the abuse of the innocent, and widespread injustice, and they're bordering on idolatry. And so her judgment is coming, and yet Judah still won't repent. And so we get to verse 11. It says, For you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say to him, read this, please, he'll answer, I can't, it's sealed. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this, please, he'll answer, I don't even know how to read. Right? So pause. Judah has been unwilling to understand what God is communicating to them. And now they're unable to understand. They're stuck. So what is God going to do? in order to break them from their rebellion and to free them from this coming judgment. Verse 13, the Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of the wise will perish, the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. So what does God do to destroy the wisdom of the wise and to evaporate the intelligence of the intelligent? Yes, welcome to the wonders of Hebrew poetry. Does God threaten them with his power to show them how weak and below them or below him they are? Or does he dance intellectual circles around them so that they, they see how stupid they are? How does God overturn the wisdom of this world? He does it 
by astounding them with wonder upon wonder. And just within Isaiah, it's clear what this is. A few verses later, Isaiah talks of a day when the deaf are going to be hear the message spoken to them, when the blind, even though they're in deep darkness, are going to be able to see, a day when the meek are going to rejoice and those in need are going to be glad. And that definitely sounds like someone we should know. And yet if that isn't enough, at the beginning of the most famous song about the Christ or the Messiah in Isaiah 52 and 53, God says that this man is going to be marred beyond human likeness, that he's going to startle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him for what they were not told they see and what they have not heard they're going to understand. The wonder of Isaiah, which is going to break the rebellion of humanity, is the same wonder of Paul's simple message, Christ crucified. The message of the cross wasn't just a rash act by God. It was something planned long, long ago. So continuing on in 1 Corinthians. It says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased with the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. In the last few weeks in youth group, we've been talking about how the way we tend to understand the world today and the way that the Bible understands the world is radically different. And it was the same in Paul's day. Because for the Greco-Roman culture that Paul lived in, the gospel made no sense based on how they understand life and the divine and the world. In Roman society, there was a strict hierarchy of power. Some were born to rule, others were born to be slaves. Life wasn't equal, and and those in power would never give up that power for those weaker than them. And just even within the Roman household, you see this. If you were a servant, you obeyed, period. If you were a child, you obeyed, period. If you were a woman, you obeyed your husband, period. And within that household, the Roman man had power over life and death with impunity. They could do whatever they wanted, because the weak served and they were ruled by the strong. And that was the way of the world. But then for Greek philosophy also, mostly through guys named Plato and Aristotle, the physical world was seen as this distracting illusion. The human body was this unfortunate part of being human and it dirtied the soul. And not by anything you did with the body, but just by mere association. And spirit was the highest and purest form of existence. So the more you disassociate yourself from being physical in a physical world, then the better off you were. And then comes Paul preaching Jesus crucified. God became man. A spiritual being actually became physical? No, that's impossible. He permitted himself to suffer and die at the hands of dirty uh, dirty humans? No, absolutely not. And he did it to save us? 
those who are weaker than him, who have rebelled against him and his authority? There's no way. A powerful being would never stoop for those lesser than him. God is supposed to be wise. And yet the Jews were in a similar boat. Because while they had the writings of the Old Testament and had studied its prophecies about the coming Christ or Messiah, they expected miracles of strength. Right? They wanted wonders that demonstrated power over their enemies, that righted the wrongs and the injustices done against them. And they knew Isaiah 29. They knew that God promised to astonish them with wonder upon wonder. But they believed that would be through political conquest and empire. And then comes Paul preaching Jesus crucified. God became man. God permitted himself to suffer and die at the hands of humanity, his enemies. He offers forgiveness and love to all people, even those outside Israel. Well, the problem with Jesus crucified is that it's just so weak. God surely can't be that weak. He's supposed to be all powerful. That's crazy. There's no way. Right? The Messiah, this descendant of the famous warrior king David, is going to destroy our enemies with terrible violence, not become weak and die at their hands. And so to both worlds, the message of the cross is nonsense. It's foolish to the Greek, and it's offensive to the Jewish. And yet Jesus crucified is the greatest of power and the wisest of wisdom because it's only through Jesus and God becoming man and dying on a cross and being raised from the dead that God saves us from the coming judgment of this world. Not only through the foolishness and weakness of Jesus can we find the wisdom and power that offers us forgiveness from sin and life with God. And through it, we actually find God as he truly is. Now, in verse 21, Paul mentions that in all of its wisdom, the world has never been able to know God. And so God, in his great wisdom, did something foolish according to the world's standards. Now, it seems like the last several times I've been preaching, I've mentioned a guy named Athanasius, who was a bishop of Alexandria in the 4th century. And yes, I'd still name a child after him, um, though I've been informed under the strictest of terms that the best deal I get is a goldfish. And so I will name him Athene Fish, just so you know. Now, that's your pun for the day. Uh, but for the man Athanasius, one of the big reasons for the incarnation, which is the eternal son of God becoming human, was so that God actually might reveal himself to us in a way that makes sense to humans. See, he writes this in, in his book On the Incarnation. It says, People had turned from the contemplation of God above and were looking for him in the opposite direction, down among created things and things of sense. So the Savior of us all, the word of God, in his great love, took to himself a body and moved as man among humans, meeting their senses, so to speak, halfway. He became himself an object for the senses, so that those who were seeking God and sensible things might apprehend the Father through the works which he, the word of God, did in the body. So when people encounter God in the Old Testament, the usual response was to fall flat on your face and act like you were dead. That was it. Because people would encounter a being so beyond them, so great and untamed that it was terrifying. God isn't a tame lion, so to speak. 
And so what God did is he appeared to us in a way that we can actually recognize, that we can make sense of. He appeared to us as a man who spoke human words that we could hear with our ears, whose actions we could see and comprehend with our eyes, whose hands that we could grasp with our own, with a face that we could read and a face that we could relate with. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Josh mentioned how worshiping or glorifying God is essentially revealing who he is. And now for our nerd moment of the Sunday. In Hebrew, the word translated as glory is a word that's tied to weight or substance. And for you language nerds, that word is kavod. Now, probably the best understanding of kavod is that of muchness. And it touches on one's identity even. But just in the very literal sense, the fact that I am physically larger than most of you, that there is much more to me than there is to you, means I am more glorious than you. Something to consider. Now, for us humans, there is a sense where we can uh, increase our glory. A person can grow wealthier or gain more followers on Instagram or more friends or accomplish great things and receive praise and recognition. And these things give us power and a voice in the lives of, of others. Our glory increases. But for God, he can't become any more glorious than he is. Right? He's perfect and complete in himself. So then what is his glory? Right? What is the core of who God is of his muchness. Now, in the Gospel of John, Jesus actually tells us there is a moment when we most clearly see the glory of God, a moment where we see him most clearly revealed. And before we go there, consider what that might be. Is it Jesus performing one of his miracles and demonstrating his power? Maybe it's raising a man from the dead or overcoming death himself. Or perhaps it's his teaching and his parables showing his wisdom. Or maybe it's his discussions with the religious leaders and him showing his knowledge. Now, while God is all-powerful and he's all-knowing and he's all-wise, we actually find that those things aren't what's most important about him. In John chapter 12, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's attending a, a feast or a Jewish holiday. And there are some visiting Greeks, and they come to his disciples, and they say that they want to, to see Jesus. And when Jesus is told, he says this in John chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, it's like they, the Greeks say they want to see Jesus, but they want to meet him. But Jesus hears, he, he takes it a step further. He says, these people want to see me. Well, let me tell you the hour that I will most clearly be seen. And this is the hour. He says, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Okay, that is a bit of a weird response there, Jesus. But what is this hour? We got seeds and germination and, and whatnot. Well, Jesus goes on in verse 27. It says, now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. 
Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. So what is Jesus talking about? What is the hour, what is the moment where God is most clearly seen for who he is, where he's glorified? It's the cross. It's, he's talking about his coming death. And so what Jesus tells us is that the truest picture of who God is is his son dying as a man upon the cross to save the world. That is God glorified. And that is the way he astonishes us with wonder upon wonder in Isaiah. And that is the simple message of Paul. That the moment God is most clearly seen is Christ crucified. And that is so foolish. It is so weak. It makes no sense to the ways of this world, either in Paul's day or our own. Because it's not God with frightening power. It's not God with overwhelming wisdom. Those gods we could understand. But what we find is that it's God with terrifying love. A love so boundless that the Father sends the Son to find rejection, torture, shame, and death as a man on earth in order to bring us humans back to him. In a different letter, Paul describes this as a love that surpasses all knowledge. And though we've had 2,000 years ourselves to become familiar with the image of the dying God on a cross, it's still absurd to us today. Because we struggle to understand that committed of a love that the cross represents. We don't understand power or wisdom that serves others for their benefit rather than our own. We don't really understand forgiveness or freedom or grace that isn't actually about us. The God of the cross makes no sense to us. It's foolish. It's, a, it's offensive. And so we do what actually does make sense to us, and we abandon the cross. Right? Because the cross makes us look stupid and weak to the world, and we would rather be seen as strong and smart and respectable. And surely that's what God wants to do through us. And so without the cross, we seek power and knowledge in order to destroy our enemies, both in our culture and in the world. We seek our own comfort and our own happiness and our own sense of truth, threatening and ridiculing anyone who gets in the way of our mission. And yet, as Paul warns, without the cross, without the incomprehensible display of God's love to save his enemies, Christianity is empty. It becomes a moral idea or a political movement that glorifies itself rather than glorifying the Christ that Christianity is named after. So the message of the cross subverts the ways of this world. Because it's not God as we expect, it's God as he is. And that's the truest and greatest news. Because for all of our wisdom and power, we have never been able to understand God on our own. We are both unwilling and unable and could not escape our own sins and failures and failings. And yet God in his foolishness and in his weakness did what we could not. 
That he astounded us with wonder upon wonder through his son dying on a cross, revealing the heart of all he is and rescuing us from death so that we might find rest in him forever. Because in the power and wisdom of his love, God offers himself and holds nothing back. And isn't such a God as that incredible? Isn't such a God as that terrifying? And yet such a God as that, isn't he love? Incredible, terrifying love, not as the world knows or admires, but the love that we so deeply hunger and thirst for. And so as we end our passage one more time, it says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased with the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for how clearly you have revealed your heart to us, that you have sent your son as a man to die for us so that we might find forgiveness and relationship with you. Help us to understand that more and more as we seek you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.